0: So some months ago, I was preparing to go to a meeting that was a bit more difficult than meetings usually are, although I think meetings are frequently difficult. Anyway, a place of considerable suffering. (laughs) And I was talking with my friend Ajahn Amro about the situation at the meeting on the telephone and um, we had quite a long conversation and at the end, um, because he sometimes is a mentor to me, I asked him if he had any advice. And there was a bit of a pause on the other end of the line and then he said, yes, he said, don't suffer. And then he said goodbye and we hung up. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's all very well for him to say. He's not going to the meeting. Uh, But actually, as I thought about it, I thought it was a wonderful piece of advice because what he was really pointing toward was that there is a way to be in all situations in our life in which we can suffer a lot less. And that's really what we're here to learn at this retreat, at any retreat, or any time when we practice in any way, is how can I learn to be And to be happy, the Buddha said it was possible for beings to be happy. The problem was that we tried to do it in kind of the wrong way, as Howie pointed out the other night. A year ago, January 9th, a very dear friend of mine died in Montana of metastasized breast cancer. And she was someone that I had been quite close to and... um, visited with quite a lot during the last year and a half of her life when we knew that the cancer was back and we knew that the prognosis wasn't very good. And um, there would be many moments when I would sit with her and really try to take in the fact that she was probably going to die soon and that she wouldn't be here and try to understand the truth of impermanence that was really staring me in the face with her illness. And then she died, and I went back to Missoula and spent some time with her body um, and helped to take the body to the crematorium and helped to place her. We actually lifted her up and put her in the casket. And then then later um, went back out to the crematorium and spent some time with... Um, what they sometimes call the cremate remains, with the ashes and the bones before they grind them up to send them back. And I actually put my hands in them and picked up like a piece of her skull and a piece of her hip bone. And in two and a half weeks, I leave to go to India. And I'm taking with me a small urn that has one quarter of her ashes in it. She wanted some of her ashes to go to the Ganges, and so I'm taking them with me. And it's been, being with her before she died, being with the whole process of her um, actual death and the, the body after death, and the cremation of the body, and now this very last little piece, has been a very, very powerful teaching about impermanence which is so central to our Buddhist understanding of things. We never know, know, none of us knows, when death will come. We all like to think, I like to think I'm going to be here until I'm 95, or actually my current figure is sort of edging up. I think I'm looking at 98 right now. And, um, And we forget that our lives are really incredibly fragile. It takes very little to change things. And um, when we begin to look at this, we also start to hold this event of our being here, um, really understanding that it's very precious. It is very precious every moment that we have here. And being with someone um, who is not going to be here fairly soon really helps to teach us that. Someone gave me a copy of a poem recently. It's by a man whose last name I can't really pronounce. It's Stanislaus Baranek or Baranzek. Um, And he says this If porcelain, then only the kind you won't miss under the shoe of a mover or the tread of a tank. If a chair, then one not too comfortable, lest there be regret in getting up and leaving. If clothing, then just so much as can fit in a suitcase. If books, then those which can be carried in the memory. If plans, then those which can be overlooked when the time comes for the next move to another street, continent, historical period or world? Who told you that you were permitted to settle in? Who told you that this or that would be forever? Did no one ever tell you that you will never in the world feel at home in the world? So being with this, with this truth of impermanence, if porcelain, then only the kind that you won't miss when you drop it and step on it, or when something even more difficult happens. And when we sit with our awareness of impermanence, that I mean, tonight it's so clear, the retreat is ending, right? It felt several days ago when you got here, as though maybe it was going to go on for forever and probably about mid afternoon on Thursday you were really terrified that it was going to go on forever and now it's over it's ending you know and by this time tomorrow in a sense it will be dead it will be gone so when we when we allow ourselves to begin to see this it's really one of the the first things that we see and that begins to start opening the mind and the heart so I want to look tonight at all of the ways that we can, in addition to seeing impermanence, begin to support this shift in how we see things, the shift in, um, in our view and this opening of the heart. A couple of months ago I was on a retreat. I was teaching. And um, the place I was teaching is an old Catholic uh, monastery and school in northern Missouri. And um, it has these kind of interesting little cubicles that are phone booths where I would go to call my husband at night. And um, they had these kind of folding (laughs) doors, and so I would go in, and because like many monasteries, the walls were very thin, I would close the door, and I would make my phone call. So this particular night, I hadn't had any success getting through, and it was time to get out of the phone booth, and I went to... Uh, open the door, and I couldn't get it open. And I kept pushing at the door and pushing at the door, and it wouldn't open. And, and then I sat there and I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I'm stuck in the phone booth. I can't remember whether I was giving the talk that night, but it was not a good idea that the teacher be stuck in the phone booth. And i pushed push at the door and push at the door and nothing happened. And then I began to bang on the door, hoping that maybe somebody would come and would rescue me. And nobody was, even though the walls were thin, nobody was around to hear me banging. And then I thought, I wonder if there's, I'm doing something wrong. And I pulled on the door instead of pushing on the door. And of course, the door immediately opened and I was free. And I I had to laugh, it was such a wonderful example, because my perception was off, you know, and I had a whole story about how the phone booth opened, and it didn't open that way. And the more I tried to open it that way, the more stuck I got and the more scared I got. Sometimes I carry with me as a teaching tool, I don't happen to have it this time, a map that I'm very fond of. It's a map that's printed on a tea towel that I bought in New Zealand. and At the bottom of the tea towel, it says, no longer down under. And it's a map of the world that has Antarctica at the top. And then Australia and New Zealand and, and Africa and South America and all of those things. And way down at the bottom, you have the United States and Canada and the Arctic. I saw a map like this for the first time when I was in the Exploratorium. And I love that map. It's a wonderful map because when we think of a map of the world, most of us think of the world, you know, with the Arctic up on the top and the United States and all of that. America is right very nicely on top. And I'm actually quite of the opinion that that has strongly shaped our perception of who we are in the world. You know, we're on top and all the rest of those folks are down at the bottom. But, you know, there is no top and there is no bottom. That's just an idea we have. For all we know, you could put the poles on either side and that would be just as accurate, a map of the world. So we we get we, we lock into these places where we have a particular idea of how things are. When we sit, Several of you pointed to this in your interviews today. There are places that we begin to see as we sit, we're giving our attention to our experience, and all of a sudden this idea of me begins to emerge. Some story, some image, some sense. It's the tiniest thing will catch our mind and a whole story about ourselves, about who I am and who I am in relationship to this person or who they are, um, comes like that. It's so fast. Have you noticed how quick it is? Um, and, and a whole perception of how we think it is and, the, and a sense of self that's very, very solid um, begins to show itself. When I started sitting some years ago, um, Jack was telling a particular story that about his training and teaching um, that really touched me a lot. And I continue to think about it and tell it. And in fact, it came up in a conversation with one of the teachers, even while we were here. And it was um, a question that he had asked one of his teachers. And he went to the teacher and... Um, was a, a well-known meditation master, and um, he thought perhaps he'd get some words of wisdom, you know, how you're always hoping to get a few words of wisdom. And so he asked the teacher about the nature of self. And um, the teacher thought for a moment, and then he giggled, and he said, no self, no problem." And if you remembered nothing else out of this retreat, that might be a good thing to remember, to just carry with you and ponder it every now and then. No self, no problem. What does that mean? Angelus Silesius said it a bit differently a bit longer ago. He said, God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So we give you these instructions. We say, with some sense of playfulness and yet with a great deal of discipline, give your attention to your experience. Notice your seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and mental objects. And you'll notice that there isn't anything else except those things, moments of seeing, moments of hearing, moments of touching, one after another. That's all there is. And see if you can do it without the story, without the story. Because the story is where the sense of self gets really solid, really, really solid. All the stories we have about I and me and mine, over and over, endlessly, endlessly, it gets a little sad sometimes, you know, the mind seems to just keep cranking one out after another, or sometimes it does the same one over and over and over again, it really loses its imagination. All these agendas, you probably noticed that today, you have a few agendas coming up about what's going to happen, and maybe maybe they're not so much about next week, maybe they're, oh, this was really great, I'm going to come back and I'm going to sit this and I'm going to sit that and I'll be on staff at Spirit Rock or whatever. And we we create all of these agendas for ourselves. Emily Dickinson quite wisely once said, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? No, I'm nobody. And so it's a very interesting place to consider what happens when we start understanding ourselves that way, that, that we are nobody, or to, to, instead of locking into a particular picture or story of I and me and mine, begin to have a somewhat different perspective, just as I needed to have a somewhat different perspective in order to get out of the phone booth. Having a really strong, solidified sense of self, I think, is like being in a really tiny, stuffy Nasty phone booth on occasion. So here's another poem. Chesla Malo says, Love means to, look, to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. The way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, Friend. So he's really pointing to the kind of thing that can begin to happen as we sit. We begin to see ourselves sometimes with this different perspective as though we were seeing from some great distance. A few years ago I was in a time of some trouble in my life and confusion and I was taking a walk with Gil Fronstell whom many of you know and love. And the problem was looming huge, and I felt like I had to make a decision, and I didn't know what to do, and it was really a big thing. And Gil said, in his kind of dry and sweet way, he said, well, he said, sometimes when I have things going on, I like to remember that I'm one of five million people. Five, five million? Five hundred million. I forget exactly. Five million. Billion. There we go. Six, five billion. Six, billion. six billion. All right. I got all my friends up here keeping me on track. Five billion people. One five billionth. And somehow, even if it were five million, I mean, being one five millionth is still pretty small. You know, being part, being that tiny. You know, it's like I'm a little bacteria or a virus or something, and um, not such a big thing. And then, and it was very helpful. Actually, I kind of went, oh, okay, the world will not come to an end, even if I make the wrong decision, you know, it's really pretty small. So we sit, we give our attention to our experience a little bit here and there, this sense of I or me or mine begins to soften, to loosen, we're not holding on quite so hard to our stories about ourselves. And the heart begins to open. When I was here in October sitting with the monks, I wrote a poem. And it speaks to this, so I thought I'd share it with you. And it refers back to Emily and her question about being nobody. Emily once said, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Being nobody, I walk these hills in the morning and soar with the vultures. In the evening, I open into vast moonlit space. In the moments of no one, then the mystery of is this, whose heart is so full. So those... Of us who've been sitting together, probably many of you have had some sense of this, that um, the stories subside, maybe even just a little bit, but a little bit creates a difference. And the heart begins to open, and there's some sense of kindness and compassion, and even sometimes some joy, you know, that comes in this practice. And we begin to explore that territory. What would it be if we could um, be in this place of kindness and compassion and um, caring for ourselves and others um, more often? Rumi tells us that, he says, Um, Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. And in another poem, he says, Dissolver of sugar, dissolve me now. So he he moves into this place knowing that really what's required is that um, in order to continue the opening, there is a kind of continued dissolving and letting go that needs to happen. So it's true, when we are solidified, when we are attached, when we are identified, when we are contracted, kindness and compassion are really, really hard. Just very hard work. And when we are in a place of less identification with ourselves, less holding on to our story, less attachment to what is mine and to what is me, and to i as the center of the universe then things get a bit easier it's really true like jack's teacher said you know no self no problem when we come to a retreat we bring a lot of baggage somebody sent me this poem showed up in the new yorker recently and it's called zazen which is a Zen term that means sitting, so it could as easily be called Retreat. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself, staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with F's, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the dime-a-dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, (laughs) and my mouth as full of of barbs as an old trout. No one praised my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. So, as the stuff that we're identified with, the horse we never had, the casseroles that no one chose at the potluck supper, all of those things, <laughs> uh, the chemistry quizzes with Fs, the failures in relationship, the failures in spiritual practice, whatever it is that your own particular trunk disgorged this time. One of the things we see is how much we need forgiveness. You know, I talked about that a little bit the other night when we did metta practice, how much needs forgiveness within ourselves and how much we also need to offer forgiveness. And I wanted to revisit that because I think it's one of the places that's quite interesting in this process of opening and letting go of stories and letting go of identifications. Someone in one of my groups once came to me and she said, I think forgiveness is the other F word. I don't like it. And it makes me very uneasy. And she went on to talk about how it really was, in her own mind, really equated with denial. Jack Cornfield says sometimes that um, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. (laughs) Giving up all hope of a happy past letting go of that story so here's one more poem I do love teaching with poems you'll have to forgive me but this is a poem from Alice Walker and speaks to this really she says looking down into my father's dead face for the last time my mother said without tears without smiles without regrets but with civility night, Willie Lee I'll see you in the morning. And it was then that I knew that the healing of all our wounds is forgiveness that permits a promise of our return at the end. So, forgiveness does not mean forgive and forget. That's a phrase that many of us were raised with, and I actually think it's a very unuseful phrase. And someone once suggested that perhaps a better phrase might be to remember fully and forgive. So in the process of remembering fully, we really do have to let go of all hope of the happy past. You're never going to get a revised past that um, is a happy one. And it isn't about making things nice. And it isn't about denying that something happened. So whatever it is that forgiveness is, it really needs to include the place where we open to our story and to the history that we've had. It's a place actually where looking at the story can sometimes be useful. It's also important to stay when we talk about forgiveness that it isn't about not having boundaries. You know, sometimes it's said that forgiveness is not having to shut anyone out of your heart. And I always like to add that you may have to shut them out of your living room. <laughs> so that even though your heart may be open to someone who hurt you at some point or another, um, you may need to keep them very much out of your life if what happened was in some way dangerous to you. So it's a process of opening, that seems to come up a lot, doesn't it? We keep talking about opening, opening, opening. It's also a slow, slow process. I said to you the other night, you know, if you sit here, and we're at the forgiveness portion of doing metta practice, and what you do is you think, well, I don't want to forgive that person, but maybe someday, possibly, if I got big enough, if I sat long enough, if I went through ten more lifetimes, I might come to a place where I could, that might be doing forgiveness practice for you that evening. Just holding that glimmer of a possibility that you could someday forgive that person. So slow. Ajahn Amaro again in a conversation, another conversation, in which I was bemoaning my inability to forgive some people who had been very difficult in my life. And he listened to me moan and groan for a while, and then he said, forget about forgiveness, just don't take revenge. <laughs> it's great advice again. And that's part of the process, you know, that as we, as we begin to inhabit this place of not being so identified with I and me and mine and open to the work of that place and open to all of the stuff that, we, that comes out of our trunk and really look at, okay, what is this forgiveness process? That's one of the first steps, is you just don't take revenge. But, you know, we live lives with so many, so many mistakes in them. And it's really hard. Have you noticed? to um, love well and to care for other people well. Henri Nouwen says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak, that is the human family. So we move into it and it moves slowly and it unfolds itself slowly and we try to do it without pretending that this or that didn't happen, trying to be just as real in this process as you are with the breath and as you are with the pain in your knee. And one of the important places is that place of understanding and seeing um, the energies and the problems of the other person, finding out what we know about them in ourselves. You know, um, Some teacher of mine once gave me a little way to look at that, which was, um, I don't like your necktie what's wrong with me? You know, We always think if we don't like the other person's necktie or shoes or whatever, it's their fault. But sometimes it's interesting to look at, well, what is this in me? You know, To really place ourselves in the other person's shoes. And um, it's quite interesting to do that, to try to imagine, well, this person did this very difficult thing to me. I wonder what it felt like to be in their mind and their heart and their body at that moment. And sometimes what I find is that um, when I understand that energy in myself, you know, the place that can be mean or snide or um, rude or cruel, because I have those places, you know. So if I remember, oh, yeah, the last time I was cruel, this was what was happening in my own being. I was hurt, I was scared, I was upset, I was this, I was that, whatever then sometimes I I can be a little more spacious around um, the other person's stuff. So really what this means is we need to know our own shadow. You know, that shadow stuff in ourselves, the, the tigers that inhabit our own personal jungles. You know, practice with tigers is a part of this forest tradition that we come from. And in Thailand, there's wonderful stories about monks meeting tigers. There's one that I particularly love, (coughs) in which the monk met the tiger face-to-face going down the trail. So he turned around thinking he'd go the other way. Pretty smart, maybe. And there was another tiger coming up behind him. So he stood absolutely still, the story goes, and went into total meditative absorption. So he was very, very still and not behaving like prey, really. And when he came out of his meditative state, both tigers were gone. Wonderful story, huh? You could try it out here on the raccoons or the turkey vultures or something. We don't have tigers to speak of. We have mountain lions, but I don't even know if there are any around here. But we can't do that kind of practice here in California. But, you know... We don't do it outwardly, but we do do it inwardly. And so part of this process of how do do I learn to love, how do I learn to forgive, really involves finding these difficult places in our own being. Remember that line from Pogo? He says, I have met the enemy and they are us. So we meet different enemies. And we find out that really, we all, we all know all of this stuff. When, we're, when I'm not so narrowly holding on to who it is that I am, what it is that me is, um, then I can begin to understand that I have the potential to do just about anything that any human being anywhere could do. It's all there in me, and it's all there in you, whether you own it or not. So this means a way of beginning to look at things where there isn't any, you know, us and them. That incredible split that will perpetuate conflict as long as it's there. I've been intrigued for years with um, the idea of Aikido practice. and In Aikido, as you begin to encounter your opponent, Some of you probably do Aikido, so you know this. The idea is that you stand, you get quite centered, and you get very, very big so that your own being includes the being of your opponent. And then then as the opponent's energies come toward you, you work with those energies and your own energies to move the whole system into a safe place. So that's an understanding that there can't be any us and there can't be any them. And out of that place, there can be a great deal more kindness and a great deal more forgiveness. A couple of weeks ago, I had occasion... To be again with Ajahn Amaro and one of the young monks from his community, when this young monk went back to visit his family, and his family uh, had not seen him since he had entered the monastery, and his family was a very strong, is a very strong, devout Southern Baptist family who were very confused about why their son had chosen to become a Buddhist monk and they didn't know what to do with it. They haven't visited him yet at the monastery. This was the first contact. And Russell and I were, my husband and I were driving um, the monks up from Esalen to Santa Cruz. So we stopped to visit this family and there was, it was this most improbable gathering. Two monks one sort of long-haired, hippie-looking man, one sort of older, white-haired, short-haired woman, and um, this couple. And um, what was quite wonderful about it was that everyone was determined to try to be as open and as loving as possible. And everyone was also determined to hold on to their own sense of what good practice was. So we heard about how it was important to love Jesus, and that was how we were going to um, be saved. But we also heard, um, and we heard about why it was important to be a Buddhist monk, and we also had Ajahn Amro's delightful sort of British humor, and I sort of did the mom support thing, And the mother kind of patted the young monk's hand and put her arm around him and just sat there and loved him and was so happy to see him. And what was quite amazing was that this meeting, which could have been filled with conflict, because everyone stretched, maybe not a lot, just a little bit and didn't hold on quite so tightly to their stuff, even the people who were really passionately wedded to their stuff and we had this meeting, and there was some healing, I think, that happened there. And I feel so privileged to have just been able to see it, you know, to have been the, the vehicle that happened to be driving these people through. <clears throat> so I think that's a teaching for us. You know, how how can we, is it possible to let go enough, to open enough? To be big enough, there's an image you know what a Bodhisattva is? You know, a Bodhisattva in the Buddhist world is this being whose intent is to continue to come back lifetime after lifetime to serve all beings until all beings are enlightened. So they put off their own enlightenment. It's a big, big job being a Bodhisattva, and it's a huge heart. And one of the descriptions in one of the sutras is, they're so big, it's like they can hold a whole galaxy in the palm of their hand, you know, a whole world system right there, imagine, you know. And so I think that's what we're challenged to do, is to try to let go of some of that baggage, let go of our our identification with how we are supposed to be, how we have to be, how we think we want to be. And to become much bigger and much faster so that we can include all of those energies. Being nobody my heart is full, you know, being nobody it's so much harder to hate when you're nobody so much harder. And the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the collections of Buddhist sayings. It says, Hard rains the rain on covered things. No rain rains hard on open things. So open ye the covered things. Then no hard rain will rain on that. So as we do this, I think the last place this leads us to is to a place when we can be filled with gratitude for what comes in our life, you know, that, that place of, you see it so clearly when we're sitting, where one thing comes after another. And every event brings its own teaching when we are able to let go just a little bit. You know, every event, every being is your teacher. So you might take a moment and consider who or what was your most important teacher this retreat. It's probably not the four of us sitting here. It may be your left knee, you know? Or it might be the person whose head was on the other side of the wall, this far away from you, who was talking loudly in their sleep the other night, or snoring, or slamming doors. Or it might be the meal that you really liked, or the meal that you really disliked. I don't know. But if you if you consider it, something in this retreat was probably a very very important teacher for you. We did a whole week in my community in Santa Cruz last winter, looking every day who who was your teacher, who was your teacher today, who was your teacher today, and people had all different kinds of teachers in their work lives and their family lives. It turned out for me that was when my mother had her stroke in Puerto Rico and. So I actually had to end the retreat early and go to be with her and my father to help them until she was able to travel home. Um, And that was a very profound teaching, to, to suddenly be with this person who had taken care of me when I was little and not capable, and all of a sudden she was little and needed to be helped to the toilet and needed to be washed and needed to be fed and encouraged to eat. And the whole thing was reversed. And such a teaching. Those of you who have done that know that place. So this thing about being nobody is really important. It's what allows us to forgive. It really is what allows us to love. It allows us to move into gratitude. That, interestingly enough, in any moment when we can let go some, of attachment to the idea and story of who it is that we are, then that's actually a moment of freedom. It's a moment of nibbana right now. Nibbana doesn't have to be something that's way out there that you get to if you practice for years and years and years and probably shave your head and become a monk or a nun, and maybe several lifetimes later you'll get there. It's also an in-the-moment thing. And when we learn how to be nobody and to be in the present moment, there are places, there are moments of freedom. And hopefully, if we practice hard enough and long enough, they come closer and closer together. In that place, everything is quite amazing. Moments of incredible wonder, you know. What is this hand? You what is this hand? Or wonder at the turkey vultures out there circling in the sky or the scent of the bay trees or the frogs croaking in the streams and touching us in some very powerful way. Who would have thought that your heart could open because a frog croaked? But they do, don't they, you know? So over and over again, we let go of the story. We come back into the present moment. We release our attachment to I and to me and to mine. And then we discover that we are in this landscape of forgiveness and kindness. It's not a place that has no pain, and it's not a place that has no loss, those are there. But it is a place in which we can experience a deep and profound gratitude, nonetheless. So I want to end with one more poem. It's a poem from W.S. Merwin, and it's called simply, Thanks. And it's a poem that really addresses this place of gratitude, no matter what your circumstances are. He says, Listen, With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, After funerals, we are saying thank you. After news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich, and of all who will never change, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying, thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying, thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying, and waving, dark though it is. So let's sit and breathe together for just a moment. Just sit just the way you are. Thank you for listening.